Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. So as 2021 comes to an end, we're taking a little break, but sharing a couple of our favorite podcasts of the year. This episode, recorded in May, is with an old friend, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it, and I wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy healthy new year. Jen Saki, it is always great to see you. We've been friends for a long time. Um, and I was thinking today, way back to 2007, when you were wrangling reporters for us yeah. on, on a campaign plane. Some of those reporters are now very big deals in the media industry, yeah. right? As are you. Like, that's what happens. They all grow up. <laughs> People with talent move up in life. But, you know, back then, it was June of that year, I think, that Apple rolled out the iPhone. Uh, we were all using Blackberries. There was no Instagram, no Snapchat. Twitter was in its infancy. Yeah. Tell me about what's different now than then, because it seems like the pace and the challenges are much greater. It is so significantly different. And even as you said, in that 12 year span, uh, and a, yeah, a big driver of that, there's no question is Twitter, at least in my world every single day. Um, Facebook, uh, no question, a little bit in the news today, uh, but is a driver of getting content out. Obviously, there's lots of questions about misinformation, et cetera. But Twitter is where it's a big driver of the media conversation. Uh, yeah. It's a big driver of news um, gathering, new sharing. Um, and oftentimes it can give an indication of where a certain storyline is going to go on a daily basis. And that's, nobody wants to really admit that, but that continues to be very much the case. So one of the things that's massively changed, maybe back before 12 years ago, because we had the internet then, but uh, is that it's no longer that you have to wake up. I don't, I don't wake up every day in part is because I have two preschoolers and I don't really have the luxury of like sitting down and splaying out hard newspapers across my kitchen table. That's my dream. I would love to do that, but most days that's someday. not possible someday, but the news uh, cycle is so fast that even what's in the print newspaper is rarely going to be what yeah. we're going to talk about at the briefing that day. So it's a constant monitoring of where the conversation's going and what the latest thing is. And it is a constant. There's really no moment of rest. You know, I remember the difference between the 2008 and 2012 campaigns in terms of the amount of personnel we devoted to following social media uh, yeah. was exponentially more in 2012. How much of your staff time is devoted to monitoring social media and how much are you checking and are they checking Twitter uh, before you go out and speak to these reporters? Well, I will tell you, when we're looking at who's in the briefing room, I often will go through Twitter and see what they've been talking about. And that's not anything that's secret. It just gives you an indication of what's on their minds. And yes, there are big news stories every single day where you can anticipate. Today, we were going to be asked about whether we were going to support a waiver uh, at the WTO to uh, on, on IP, on intellectual property, on patents. Very nerdy, but an important issue. I knew that. It didn't matter what Twitter said. But depending on who's in the briefing room, there may be different storylines they're following. It may, uh, it may impact the flow of the conversation. And it also does give you an indication of whether something is escalating or not. Mm -hmm. So even though Twitter is a very imperfect social media platform, it, it makes the conversation and the nature, I think, of doing this job that I'm doing now quite different than, than it has been in the past. I will say the other thing, and we did this, I mean, in the early days, as you all remember, of the Obama administration, you know, we 
had the, the new media office, I think what we called it. Do you remember at the yeah. time early on, which tells you a lot. Yes. And by the end, when I left, at, you know, in 2017, we called it the office of digital strategy and it had doubled in size. And with this administration, obviously time has passed. That team um, is really remarkable what they do. And it is all, it, it makes it clear that at this point in time, it's all on a spectrum. So on any given day in my job, I may have a conversation. Maybe I'll, I'll do a hit a morning show interview with CNN, and then I'll have a couple reporters in here and have a conversation about their print stories, do the briefing. And then in the afternoon, I may do an interview with uh, somebody who's uh, big on YouTube about substantive issues, you know, about the family's plan or the job's plan. And it is reaching uh, sometimes a larger audience, sometimes just a different audience. And they're all tools on the spectrum. So our, our digital strategy team, you know, they're part, they, they are their own department, but they are part of our media engagement approach and our approach of reaching the American public, which is, of course, what we're all just trying to do on a daily basis. Yeah, I remember when uh, President Obama did Between Two Ferns yeah. when he was uh, campaigning for uh, around health care to get young people to sign up for uh, uh, for health coverage. And everybody said, well, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? And I think it had 10 million hits, yeah. which is a lot more than you'll get on the nightly news. True. But, well, but you can also argue the nightly news still has millions of viewers, right? And yes. a lot of time is still, TV is still incredibly influential. Uh, that's how a lot of people get their information. Local news, as you well know, still hugely important. But what we've also found is that these audiences, there often, sometimes there's an overlap and sometimes there is not an overlap. And you're meeting people, you're reaching people, meeting them where they are, people who may not go to whitehouse.gov and look mm-hmm. for your fact sheets, but they may- Which is a lot of people. Which is a lot of people in the country. <laughs> it's a huge country. So- it's a recognition of that and the notion that, and I remember that at the time there was this, this wasn't serious. It's not yeah. real. You know, first of all, I think we don't need to underestimate the intelligence of the American public, but we also don't need to assume that they are going to consume information through fact sheets and acronyms, right? Because that's just not how most people living their lives do things. And we right. have to kind of think more creatively and bigger than that. Hey, even going back further, we got castigated when he, um, early in his administration, went and did The Tonight Show. It's like, Wild. why is he on a comedy show? Wild. Well, because a lot of people watch that show. A lot of people watch it, and, and they want to know basic, you know, we're going through this now as we're entering this new phase on COVID and the, and the pan, uh, getting the vaccines out, right? Because we're, we're past the point where people were in a state of, when can I get my vaccine? You know, people are taking selfies and wearing, making T-shirts and getting champagne. We're now at the stage where we got to convince people to take the vaccine and, and the barriers to that sometimes it's often shorthanded in a very, sometimes an irresponsible way that it's hesitancy. We actually have seen a reduction in that. It's actually more about people needing to get information and needing to know how to access it. Right. So you can't, that can't all be through the evening news, right? It, it also can't all be through Facebook. It has to be through a range of tools and a range of platforms to, to get to people. So 10 years ago, most people don't know this, but they, they will now. 10 years ago, you were a very, very prime candidate to do the role you're doing now. In the Obama administration, uh, Jake Carney got the job at the time, but you were the dark horse candidate. And very much in contention for that job. I remember thinking, thank God I didn't get that job because I would not have been ready at that moment. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to ask you because you've had 10 years of experience now, and that's included being spokesperson at the State Department, White House communications director. You spent a couple of years over with us at CNN and did splendid work over there. Uh, you worked for uh, for the Carnegie Foundation for World Peace. Is that, did I get the International peace, but international you know, peace. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The key is peace. There, whatever. Carnegie well, Endowment for National Peace. Yeah. Yeah. And um, tell me what you didn't, what you know now that you didn't know then. Yeah. Ten years ago, about this work, about the kind of work you're doing. You know, I feel like it's been a real journey for me. I never would have predicted I was going to be in this job in this moment. A. Yes. But you know, at that time, I was. 31, 32-ish, you know, and I, like all of us young whippersnappers um, in the Obama White House, was obviously so happy to be there and was part of history. 
but you kind of think you know a lot more than you may know. And some of what's happened between now and then is professional. You know, I served, as you said, at the State Department and learned a lot about foreign policy issues and global issues. And I will tell you, after I was a, the victim of Russian propaganda. Yes, I wanted to ask you about that. It kind of prepares you to go toe to toe with Fox News or whoever's going to come <laughs> at you. You know, I wouldn't have predicted that. You know, I also had two kids and that gives you a lot of perspective and is very centering too. And just having just a little bit more experience under your belt means I'm not, I've, I've been through, there will be new things. This is what's cool about these jobs. It's new things that happen that you have never happened in past administrations, yeah. but yeah. I've also been through legislative battles. I've been through global crises. I've been through, unfortunately, many mass shootings. And so you're more grounded with your feet on the ground about it. There's little that's going to unbalance me, I think, at this point in time. I'll also say, I mean, between now and then, I'm sort of like always a bridesmaid and like finally <laughs> a bride. And that like, you know, I also was the runner up in 2014, 2014. Yeah. yeah. Job too. When Josh Ernest, who is wonderful. Um, and so was Jay got the job. And that was a different time and experience for me. Cause I was devastated at that time. And, you know, I was devastated. I didn't get the job and was really sad, but that's also a good life experience for you, you know, yeah. and that also helps build your character and makes you realize like some things aren't going to work out. And uh, but, you know, as I look at this moment, you know, actually a journalist, we both know, um, said to me when I was announced for this job that um, he had also been the bridesmaid several times for having his own show. And when he finally got it, it was like a recognition that maybe you're ready for the moment. And hopefully you meet that. Right. But I do feel that having kids, a little more life experience, the State Department, my time at CNN, you know, help, help prepare me in a way for this moment that I wouldn't definitely would not have been 10 years ago or even six or seven years ago. Yeah. And one thing you learn when you work there is even if there are things that you're not prepared for, and there will always be things you're not prepared for. Like I remember in 2010, the oil leak in the Gulf, and you'll remember it as well. And Robert Gibbs, uh, one of your predecessors and one of our good friends. became like an expert on became an instant expert on, I mean, he just, steeped himself in that. And I guarantee you two weeks earlier, Robert didn't know anything about deep sea oil leaks. And by the end of it, he knew more than anybody would ever want to know. But that's part of the thrill of working in the White House, because every day you're you're learning stuff. Every single day. Yeah. And that's such a good example and model. I think sometimes people think, not you, but a lot of people like who haven't worked in here, think that this job is like, you just get up, you're like a weather girl or a weather guy, (laughs) right? And you just kind of get up and you give some talking points, but that's really just like the tip of the iceberg of what's happening, right? Because when you're not doing the briefing, you're in policy meetings, you're having discussions, you're figuring out what to say about something. And as the oil spill is an example of you're the, I think the best people throughout history at this job are people who, or any of these jobs, you know, communications press jobs, are people who get really steeped in the substance and the policy um, and can go nine layers deep as much as you can uh, on what it is you're going to talk about, because that's how you can explain it in a way that your your mother, your cousin, your neighbor who's not involved understand. Yeah. And the good thing about the White House is you do have access to any expert you really want to speak to. There's nowhere else where you can just summon people up to tell you what you need to know. It is the coolest thing. It is. So you can pick up the phone and just say, I'd like to talk to Jake Sullivan. Can you see if Jeff Zients is available? Is Susan Rice around? Right. And that's what, one, it's amazing. And you learn so much every day from those people. And part of, I think, what this job is meant to do is help, you know, gather all of that wisdom and intelligence and understanding of things and deliver it out to the media and the public. But it's also, yeah, you learn something new every day. Yeah. And the good thing is when they say no, you know, it's probably time to go. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Who's this? Jen Psaki? No, I don't think so. They're not. No, still not available. <laughs> but let me ask you, you're on a high wire every day and you must have that sense when you walk out there. Yeah. Because words actually matter in this building. I mean, even yeah. after the last administration where they didn't care so much about that. Um, I always thought like, you know, you, you, you speak for the president of the United States, you know, you can send armies marching and, and markets tumbling. Yeah. And no one more than the press secretary. Yeah. 
Are there moments? No pressure. I'm glad I did the briefing already. Yeah. Like a yeah. little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be careful, my friend. That's my whole message. No. Don't move <laughs> I mean, have there been moments in the last four months where you've said, oh, shit, I didn't land that right? Almost every day. I mean, not because I moved a market. Thing. Right. I haven't no, you haven't, had a, you haven't had a market mover. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you speak and answer questions for 45 minutes to an hour at the podium. There's always times where I wish I had sent something in a more articulate or clear or crisp way. And there are certainly days where I wish I hadn't said something that I had said, right? Really, I think it was maybe my first week or second week. Somebody asked me about the Space Force and- (laughs) Yes, you made a joke about it. (laughs) Right. And my intention was never to begrudge the men and women serving the Space Force. I, I was a week in and I had not spent time with the Space Force yet, but that was a good lesson. Right. You know, there are people who are working hard at these jobs and and that was a good lesson. And I certainly yeah, to their credit, the head of the Space Force wrote me a note. I now have a Space Force pin. I will always be an advocate for the Space Force, but it's it's a lesson. I mean, there's a there's tremendous opportunity, but responsibility. And I think, you know, as you go out there too, you're also not there are days where you just can't go farther on certain things. There's parameters of why you don't say more. Yeah on issues in the world, on personnel issues. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's frustrating to reporters in the room, understandably. I mean, their job is to push you and push you, but your job is to provide as much information as transparently as possible. But also there are times you can't go farther because it's not in the interests of an outcome, whether yeah. it's negotiation or a policy discussion with the Hill or whatever, whatever it may be. I was going to say, by the way, that I thought you were going to say that the Space Force people offered to launch you into space after that. uh... They may have secretly, but they did not acknowledge (laughs) that to me. So, but yeah. On your larger point, though, you know, you're coming after an administration that, you know, famously lied. I mean, lied for practice. And there was a, a great deal of jaundice about what was said from that platform. In some ways, that set you up for success. Because just by being reasonably honest, you're winning friends. But how do you walk that line between not lying, but not being as forthcoming as they would like you to be, and you know you're not being forthcoming, and they know you're not being forthcoming? Like, How do you make those calculations, and what kind of moves have you developed to try and navigate those kinds of situations? I mean, this is a place where it was, it's really, it has been very helpful to me personally. Obviously, everybody comes into this job from different backgrounds to have worked at the State Department because there are certain places you can't go there or you can't say more about because it's classified, right? Or because they're sensitive negotiations. And I think some of it is on my best days, I'm not as articulate as this every day. It's being transparent about the fact that you can't say more, right? Yeah. I'm just not going to have more on that for you. Or stay tuned. I think we'll have more to say on it soon. It's not meant to be misleading or to lie, but you know, my job is also not to make announcements before the president of the United States makes an announcement typically, right? Or to share internal debates about issues because those are private conversations and often they're meant to be. And that's how policymaking should work. I mean, one of the most interesting things, because you know, some of this has been, of course, as you said, an adjustment from the last administration, is just the reminding people that you know, there are policy processes that happen. And in the privacy of rooms, people have disagreements, right? And have debates about issues. And that's actually how it should work. But there's just, we're kind of still in recovery from the Game of Thrones period of our history here that, um, you know, some of, some of what I think the job is in this moment, and this won't always be, and certainly hasn't been historically, is kind of reaffirming and restating like what the role of government is, right? And what the role of agencies are and what the role of policy processes are and how a bill becomes a law. Uh, I mean, and some of, I think what I try to do is explain the process or how these systems work, right? And that's part of what we're doing. Is that always hugely off the charts exciting? I guess it depends on who you are. If you're interested in government, maybe it is. They love it on C-SPAN. They love it on C-SPAN. But, you know, I think that's part of part of what we're trying to do in this yeah. moment in history. There's also a difference between, I mean, this, this, this is a nuance, but it's actually an important one, between saying, I don't know the answer 
which is sometimes the right answer yeah. or, and saying, I can't give you more than that right yeah. now. And if you say, I don't know in the wrong context, either you're lying, but the other implication is sometimes, well, you're not read in. True. And there are times and look, that way the briefing room works is, you know, is they ask whatever they want to ask, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a Wall Street Journal reporter, Alex Leary today, who asked about a pipeline in Michigan and what our position is on yeah. it. Perfectly legitimate, good question. But it's one of those issues where I said, you know, it's an interesting question and I'm going to have to talk to our team about whether we have a position on that. Or yeah, whatever. because it, Governor Whitmer is kind of battling the Canadians on that one. Exactly. And, and I do think that part of my job, just like I hopefully we'll get into a phase where people aren't trying to stump, you know, you're not trying to stump. It's not a game, but that will always be a part of it. But it's also, I think, wouldn't people rather I called Gina McCarthy and talked to her about it and asked her what the information is and got back to the reporter? You know, that's kind of how I think it should work. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. In order to be an effective press secretary, you have to have access. You have to know what the president's thinking. You have to know what the key policymakers are thinking. So give me a sense of how this works with you. Can you you just walk in and see the president when you want, Klain and others? uh, how, How does it work in that White House? So how it works, I mean, it's probably similar to how it worked in our old time together yeah. in the Obama days. You know, no one really busts in there unannounced because who knows who the president's meeting was. Oh, right, right, of course. So I'm not going to bust into a PDB, but if I need to see him or talk to him or ask him a question, um, you just ask the people in the Outer Oval Office, this great team of people who work for him, and you get time. And what's, what is a huge benefit in this moment is that the president has been in Washington or been in government for a long time. He knows what the press briefing yeah, is. Half a century. Half a century. <laughs> he knows what the reporters do. Does it mean he always likes what they write? No. But he understands. And oftentimes what he likes to get feedback on is what they're talking about and how they're digesting things. So sometimes it's a back and forth like that. But when we first talked about this job, I mean, one of the things he talked about was for me serving in this job, not his thought, you know. Yes. Was his focus on the tone being aligned, right? We, we were coming in at a moment where the public's nerves were a bit frayed, just to put it diplomatically, and also to be aligned in where he stood. So he actually welcomes the opportunity to give his perspective on things. And sometimes it's, you know, I was just in with him before we had our, we're having our conversation here because we were talking about his remarks he's delivering this afternoon on restaurant revitalization. But with him, those remarks review are also an opportunity to say, what do you think about this? Or what's your take on this? And oftentimes it's, it's me asking to get his feedback or take on things. So I am aligned with where, what his thinking is, but it's a back and forth. And I've very much found that when I do that or need to do it, you know, there's, there's um, easy opportunity for access. You've worked for four distinct personalities as a a spokesperson. You were sort of a junior spokesperson for Rahm Emanuel when he was running the DCCC. You you mentioned John, uh, obviously President Obama, uh, John Kerry uh, at the State Department, and now President Biden. Talk to me about those four principles and the differences between their styles and how you communicate for them. Yeah. When I... um joined the transition and also when I talked to the president and president-elect about this job, I mean, one of the things that was important to me was getting to know him a little bit and his thinking, because it's a really personal job speaking on someone's behalf. And, you know, when I um, worked for Rahm Emanuel at the DCCC, you know, when I was a spokesperson for regions of the country and working with candidates, Rahm was also somebody who was so accessible and so in your face that sometimes right. wanted him to go have a snack and a break, you know, <laughs> and you knew that from the first day you met him, right? He was going to, maybe my first week, he jumped up on my desk and was yelling at me about some race and what story we needed to get written. So you knew that right away. With Rom, it was learning that 
it was like working for an angry dog that you needed to not be meek and you needed to respectfully, but bark back when you disagreed. And he respected that. Let me just stop you there because that, I mean, look, I, he's been my friend for a long time, 40 years or something. And I've worked with him on a number of different occasions and you never knew which of the reporters that you were dealing with. Yes. He had reached first. That is so true. Yes. That's a complication if you're a communications person. Yes. And actually, I would say my breakthrough with Rom in my relationship with him at the DCCC was around exactly that issue because he had called, he had asked me to call Jackie Combs, who was at the New York Times uh, about a story. And I said, great, I will call her. Uh, And I literally went to the ladies room and I came back and called her and she just got, had just gotten off the phone with him. And I don't know what it was about that day. I mean, you know me, I'm not exactly like a fire breather of people, um, (laughs) but I, it just, it was kind of the 10th time that it happened. And I went into his office and I said, either I'm the spokesperson or you're the spokesperson, you know? And he, after that, it was kind of like we had an understanding. He probably wouldn't even remember that, but it stuck with me. Um, What was great about Ram is that he went directly to the source. I mean, even when he was the chief of staff at the White House, he'd like meander down to lower press and want to know the update on a story. He was deeply involved in things. So I worked for John Kerry a couple times over now. The first time I was a baby on the campaign. I wasn't. 2004, yes. Right. I was, uh, although I was at the convention when when then Senate candidate Barack Obama gave his speech. um, Secretary, Senator, Envoy Kerry, who's had many, many roles. I didn't really know him well. I was 25 the first time I worked for him. And, you know, what I learned from that experience about staffing someone is I, when I went back and I talked to him about this job at the State Department, I had this perception of him that had been kind of pushed through the public, that he was aloof and that he wasn't going to be particularly friendly or outgoing. And I thought to myself, well, he still has all this experience. It will still be this amazing experience to work for him. As Secretary of State, he's giving me the, he's you know giving me this opportunity, and what I learned from that, I mean, he is one of the warmest and kindest and most energetic I and mean, in an exhausting way human beings I've ever worked for. You know, let me ask you something about that because I did a yeah. I did a TV show with him, one of the Axe Files TV shows with him at CNN, yeah. and a lot of that came through, yeah, including more introspection than I expected. That seems like a communications failure. Yeah. The fact that the essence of who he is did not come through. Yeah. And, and still to this day, I think people have a different view of him than those who, and there are, he's not the only one in politics who yeah. suffers from that. And I worked on the campaign. I mean, I wasn't even, I mean, I was young, but I worked on the campaign. I believed in him enough to want to work for him and thought he would have been a great president, even when I thought that he was maybe aloof. Yeah, I think that's true. People didn't really see who he was. Now, granted, I saw a little bit of it through the eyes of his daughters who I got to know, and that's always a good way to see who somebody, you know, yeah. what kind of being someone is. But what um, what I saw about him and learned about him when I was working for him when he was Secretary of State was, you know, he was just kind of the kindest and most outgoing and effervescent. You know, we were talking earlier about you know, the journey of the press secretary process. And I was working at the State Department the second time I didn't get the job. I was really bummed out. And he called me and said, hey, I heard you didn't get a job you want. And I'm really sorry about that. But I am so happy that I get to keep working with you. And we're going to have some adventures around the world together. And you don't have to do that. But that kind of tells you what kind of a human being he was. But he's also somebody who you had to be very direct with him in, in preparing him for press conferences or things because he was moving at a thousand miles an hour. And I remember um, being with him during Iran negotiations and some, some of my former colleagues at the State Department were witnessed this. And I'm, you know, we, we're, we're on little sleep where he's doing a press conference. It's one in the morning or something. And I'm running after him in the hallway. And now I'm five, three, as you know, and he's six, four. And I'm saying, you can't say that. It's not credible. You can't say that. It's not credible. That sounds like, how would you talk to a secretary of state like that? But I also learned from watching David Wade, who was a longtime aide of his. Yes. You have to be super direct and specific with him and make sure he understands the consequences. And he appreciates that. He wants that from his staff, uh, which is, you know, it's a little different. Especially at the highest reaches of politics, 
you have to be willing to trust yourself. You have to be comfortable in your own skin or you come off as inauthentic. And that yeah. that is what happened to Kerry in 2004. And he and I talked about this and he acknowledged, you know, for a guy who, who wrote a book, I think it called Every Day Counts or something like yeah. that, because of all that he experienced in the war, you know, he wasn't as willing as he should have been to just let it let it ride. Yeah. And I don't think you can get elected president that way, actually. I think you have to be comfortable in your own skin and you have to be authentic. And, um, you know, I'm not sure Joe Biden was that guy 30 years ago. And I'm not sure he would be president today if he hadn't been who he is now, which is a guy who seems a lot more comfortable yeah. in, in his own skin. But talk to me about those two guys, uh, Obama and Biden. And Those two guys. Yeah, yeah. you know those two guys. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, um, it's funny talking to you about former President Obama because I probably learned a lot about how to engage with him from people like you. I mean, in that his, by the, by the end of my time of working with him, it took me some time to really feel comfortable in my own skin prepping him um, because, or staffing him. Um, because, you know, he is just, he, he was, still is kind of a figure who his public speaking and his presence was, you know, it, rare. You know, once in a generation, like, right? And even as a staffer, you know, you're inspired to work from because of that. And it took me some time. It really took me probably until 2012 when I was um, the traveling press secretary to really get comfortable. And part of it was by necessity, right? Because I had been used to traveling with him when you were there or Robert Gibbs was there or Jay or whomever it was. And suddenly I was going to be in this position where I was going to be, uh, you know, one of the senior people prepping him for interviews or for um, what press conferences, whatever it may be. And to be clear, he is not a person. He is a lovely human being to work for. So this was not a projection of his unkindness or anything like that. It's just like he's a little bit, he was a little intimidating. And Robert Gibbs. He he also doesn't exactly love prepping for those engagements. No. No, he does not love prep, does not think he needs prep. And so, you know, with that, you're kind of a bunch of barriers of like, oh, my God, I remember seeing his speech when I was 25. Right. But Robert Gibbs said to me when I started this job, you know, just act like you belong there. And at a certain point, he'll believe it and everybody will believe it. Um, And that's right. Like, you just have to kind of put your big girl pants or dress or whatever it is on. And, you know, I knew what I was talking about. I knew it was going on the campaign trail. That was not the issue, right? It was just me feeling comfortable. And with him, it was like, you have to have, here are the five things you need to know, something you may not know, uh, because there's no way you would know what this local reporter's focused on. And that's pretty much it. And if he has questions, he's always read the briefing materials. You don't need to reiterate the briefing materials. It was a very short type of prep for getting him ready to talk to people out in the world. What I also learned when I was a communications director about him, I mean, he's he's like an incredibly pra- practical in a lot of ways, while also being quite open to new things. And I would have kind of a weekly touch base with him where, where we would bring him a, a slide and we would say, here are the five things we're recommending and, he, and here's why. And he'd say, I want to do this. I want to do this differently. Or what about this? And you get into a system. I mean, I think it's so personal staffing people, presidents, obviously, secretaries of state, Mm -hmm. because they consume information, they make decisions, they're looking for different things from your from their staff. And part of what I've had to do, and I think what anyone has to do is like adapt to that, right? Adapt to what their needs are. I'm working for them, right? I can't always try to staff people in the same way. With President Biden, it's very different because he you're kind of on the journey with him. You know, he is a storyteller. I was just uh, in in general, and he's always looking to tell the story. And uh, he is always pushing and testing whether we're speaking about things in an accessible way. And we joke about how he hates acronyms. It drives him, you know, crazy acronyms. Yeah, of which there are many in government. There are many, and people write them into speeches. We were talking about just earlier today about how in the joint session speech, there was a lot of reference to R&D. And he says, okay, do people understand this? And people said, Oh, it's research and development. He said, okay, do people understand what that is? <laughs> and so I've had many moments with him that have actually been very recentering for me. You know, you work in this beautiful building and you come into yeah. work. Sometimes, you know, you, you try not to forget who you're speaking to, but he's always a reminder of it. Right. And he said, you often say to me, 
okay, on the TRIPS waiver, how are you, t- how are you explaining that to people? And yeah. then it's like, a, okay, well, here's what I'm saying. Nobody knows what that is. So don't say it like that, you know? So that's the back, but the Well, he's so right about that. I always appreciated that about him when he was vice president and I worked in the White House. He has a sense of people, and maybe that's from not living in Washington, the biggest echo chamber in the world, Uh, but he has a real sense of how real people uh, hear things, sense things. He he has a respect for people uh, and doesn't want to talk down or past than yeah. or talk in jargon and um yeah. which is unusual for someone who spent so much of his life working in Washington. Yeah. So uh no that's a gift and I think we had this discussion the other night on uh CNN. You know, he does not orate. You know, and he may not like to hear me say that because I think he always thought of himself as a senator as a great orator and that was his reputation as a young man. Boy, this guy could give a great speech, but the reality is he he speaks like fireside chats. He has conversations with the American people, and that's very effective Yeah, um, because people connect with that. Um, and, and I think that's been powerful for him. Let me ask you, um, how do you, I, I remember there was a town hall early on when he was talking about when schools were going to reopen. And you probably remember this too. You probably know where I'm going. I'm trying to remember this exactly. But he, but, but he said in this town hall. Oh, I uh, remember. This. He was asked, I think, about what you had said about when schools were going to yeah. open, and he said, "Well, that was a communications mistake." You know what's so funny about the backstory of things like this, which you'd appreciate. So we had been talking about what does it mean for the majority of schools to reopen, right? Internally, how should we explain that? And it's like, well, what we mean is more than fifty percent of schools open at least one day a week. That's the majority of schools which I, of course, went out and said, no, you realize kind of immediately that day that that is not going to be satisfying. And that's not also necessarily the goal of what you want to reach for, right? That's not the aspirational goal. So actually, when we were prepping for this town hall, I said to him, you know, this is what we said, but that's probably not, was not the right message. And we then went out and said last week, it's five days a week. And we want, the president wants schools to be open five days a week. So, in a, and we had actually, cleaned it up before that town hall. But in some ways he was just explaining what we'd said to him, which is that, which is true, is that we went out and said something that really didn't satisfy our own bars. We went out and fixed it. Uh, But in the moment, I remember people thinking, oh, you're in trouble. And it was like, I mean, I kind of suggest you say that. So I'm not going to take it too personally. So it was a case of you throwing yourself under the bus. Well, look, I mean, I think there's a recognition sometimes when you, and this is why I always appreciate when he says, what are people asking about? How are they digesting this? Because some days you go out and you explain a plan or a policy and, you know, there's like glazed over eyes or it's, it's, it's reported in a way that's not the reporter's fault, but is like, hmm, we weren't really clear on that. And sometimes you can just work to do better. And I think that was a case where it was becoming such a political issue, right? Because Republicans, as you remember, we're trying to make this. I mean, we have reporters asking us, are you worried about the midterms because yeah. it's not reopening? And it's mm-hmm. like, we're a month into the administration. <laughs> yeah. But, and now we're going to meet that goal for sure. Schools open five days a week, more than 50% of schools. So we probably should just that's the one. But you know what? The Republicans were right about the volatility of that issue. And you yeah. as a young parent understand that. Yes. There are a lot of parents out there who are desperate to see their kids back in school and they were smart to seize on that issue and make uh, as much of it as uh, as they could. L- let me talk about. Uh, let me ask you about um, uh, the handling of Biden. Now, I already said what I think his strength is, and I think it's prodigious. And especially in this moment, and obviously following Donald Trump, that sense of empathy, that sense of decency, sense of basic experience and competence, all of those are working for him. And I've said this before, so and I've gotten in enough hot water with uh, with with him over the last couple of years that I might as well just throw another log on the fire. But at any stage in his career, he was never exactly a precision instrument because everybody's strength is their weakness. And his strength is that he says what's on his mind and his weaknesses. He says what's on his mind. And sometimes that's not helpful. It seems to me that you guys have done a good job of managing that because a lot of his interactions are are speeches 
and settings in which you have a pretty good sense going in what he's going to say. Now, I, I thought he handled his press conference really well, got some really stupid questions and handled them well. But generally, you haven't had a whole lot of those interactions. And I thought of this when he, uh, there was a story early on about whether the minimum wage would be included in the uh, package, uh, the uh, rescue package, the American Rescue Act. And he, he happened to run into Caitlin Collins from CNN in the hallway. And yeah. he told her, no, nah, I don't think that's going to be in. And he was, com- he was being completely honest. He was right. But it must have given you a lot of heartburn and ask yourself, why are we allowing him to roll, <laughs> roll around in the hallways doing impromptu interviews? So how do you manage all of that? I know it's so funny. I was trying, I was, so I had left, I try to leave around 17 every night, see my kids. So this happened when he was walking home down the hallway and, you know, an intrepid reporter, Kaylin Collins, <laughs> kind of, you know, was between lower and upper press kind of, yes. I mean, she didn't even know she wasn't waiting for him. It just kind right. of happened. You know, I think the thing that's interesting is that he actually takes questions. I mean, he took questions. I mean, he did a half a mini press conference yesterday. He takes questions nearly every day he's out from the press. That is not something we recommend. In fact, a lot of times we say, don't take questions, you know, but he's going to do what he wants to do because he's the president of the United States. Yeah. I will say what we have tried to do is one, recognize like our jobs here. We're never going to satisfy the White House press corps and their desires for access. And I think there have been mistakes made in the past of trying to do that. If you do a press conference, you know, every other week or once that doesn't satisfy them, they're going to push for more. That's their job. What we've tried to do, which has also been maddening, I know for the press corps at times, is kind of not get pulled in by distraction, right? And there are days where if he did a press conference, the questions would be about Liz Cheney and yes. Mitch McConnell and Marjorie Taylor Greene and impeachment. I mean, not all in one day, but right. as an example, those are the questions they should ask, right? He still takes questions multiple times a week. The first time I traveled with him, he took questions from the pool three times that day. And I thought, am I going to be fired when I get back? I hope not. I'm enjoying this job. Um, so he does do that. And he likes doing that. I mean, the thing is, he's, he likes the press corps and likes that back and forth and that engagement. But what we've tried to do in general and thinking about how we use his time is really think about what the public cares about, right? The public cares about the pandemic, the economy. Yes. Uh, You know, we're often asked, why doesn't he go to the border? Important issue. We're focused on it. What percentage of the public is focused on the border? A much smaller percentage than who's focused on the pandemic and the economy. So that may be maddening, but, you know, that's what we try to do. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. I mean, as someone who is there and understand, I always say uh, White House communications is like driving a high-performance race car. You know, it goes very fast, but it's very easy to spin off the track. Yeah. And it is an incredible discipline to keep the car on the track. The fact that you guys have been able to keep the focus as much as you have on the virus and on uh, the economy and economic package is a real credit to you because there is a, every day there's an opportunity to spin off the track. Uh, in the White House. Let me ask you about the virus, because it seems to me you've got a real challenge um, right now, and it is to, A, communicate progress in a sense that we are approaching normal normalization, and on the other hand, to, uh, to express a sense of urgency to tell people who haven't gotten vaccinated to be vaccinated. How do you communicate those two things at once? It's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, I think what we try to do is from the beginning, the principle has been, we're going to lean into the advice of health and medical experts, right? And that has been our North Star. Uh, And, you know, oftentimes we get questions because people are human beings and everybody's tired and sick and tired of wearing masks and not going to concerts and all those things. You know, today someone asked me in the briefing uh, about the guidance for summer camps, right? And why, if you didn't have to wear that masks when you're outside as an adult vaccine adult, why you still had to wear them at summer camps. And then we have to explain because you're in a group with at summer camps. And 
So a lot of it is, but what, what we're keeping our focus on is the fact that if we can maintain a belief by the public that the CDC guidelines are based on health and medical experts, but also that they are maybe even sometimes more conservative, then they know they can trust them, right? And they know they can trust that when it's time to say people don't have to wear masks anymore inside, that they can trust that. And, you know, that's helping, that's a long-term strategy. But right now, what our focus is on is never going to be actually won by whatever the president goes out and says on a daily basis. Part of it is communicating, of course, what our, you know, what progress we're making, but it's really at a very, very local level. It's kind of like a campaign in that way, right? Because the point we're at now is that the percentage of people who have always wanted to get the vaccine and knew they were just waiting for their CVS to have it, most of those people have been vaccinated. Now we're in like the less likely voters category, right? Where you're going into neighborhoods, there's door knocking, partnerships with um, you know, local doctors, with community health centers, getting clergy to go out and communicate with uh, their communities. This has never been done before, so it's a little untested, but it's really most of what we're doing that's effective or we think is going to be effective in the data is really that kind of local, almost door-to-door effort around the country. Yeah. About the border, there's obviously a big problem down there. There is this wrestling match that you go through several times a week as to whether you're going to call it a crisis or how you're going to describe it. First of all, I mean, in the big scheme of things, explain why that's important. Explain, because this is the sort of game that drives you nuts in Washington. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to make you call this a crisis, and then we will write a story saying that you called it a crisis. Right. White House in crisis. Right, right. That's a big driver of it. You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about social media, about cable, which, you know, you're still employed by. I was too. Sometimes the chirons, the social media leads, they're looking for the nugget, right? And they, you know, we were pushed and pushed and pushed. And our calculation on that front is, one, this is cyclical. We've seen surges at the border. Every time it happens, it's bad. Until we do something to address it over the long term, root causes, immigration reform, it's going to keep happening. But really what our fo- what we had to be focused on was like what we were going to do about it. And to us, it's like that wasn't really a crisis. It was a huge challenge. But really a big driver was we understand and know the nature of some components of social media and media these days. And we just didn't want to feed into that on this issue or really any issue. Yeah. One of the things that I think he's done well is um, use his experience to convey a sense of reality. So in the press conference, he talked about what he thought he could realistically accomplish, frustrated some uh, on the left uh, on on some of these issues. But how how do you handle that? Because there's a great sense of urgency among many, especially Democrats, but not uh, certainly not limited to them on issues like guns, uh, you know, certainly on voting rights, on the reality is you've got 50 votes and not all of them are reliable on every one of those issues. But on the other hand, if you say, you know what, we may not be able to get that done. That's a, that's a barn fire in your own camp. So how do you navigate that? One of the most telling things he said at that first press conference um, was when, I can't remember the question, but when he said, sometimes you have to let them flutter their feathers a little as in, (laughs) I don't remember the phrasing. It was something like that. And it Mm -hmm. stuck with me because it sort of defined his thinking. And he's somebody who, and this is counter, I think, to the perception of him. He has this like patience about when it's the right moment for things. Right. And you know, sometimes to your point, that doesn't always sound good for people to hear, right? In the first press conference, there was a momentary dissatisfaction with a lot of gun advocacy groups, groups he cares about a great deal. And frankly, you know, I'm like working for him because I care about those issues too. Yes. Who were upset because they felt like he was very dismissive about the guns issue. Now, some of it is contextual. You can't really explain. It was like 48 minutes into a press conference and it was like a weirdly asked question. But, you know, I don't think we, we're never going to be taking out who he is from who he is, right? Which is being straightforward about what's right. possible. If, as I said earlier, I think if you did that, he would be far less effective. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you've got to accept the strength and the liabilities that come with the strength and authenticity and straightforwardness is a strength. And it's a particular strength after the last guy. Yeah. And look, on guns, he's still believes something can get done. He's an optimist by nature. Otherwise, he wouldn't be here. Right. But there's like an argument about the role of states. Right. Uh, steps that can be taken that may not feel as sweeping as banning assault weapons. They're not, but banning those guns is pretty good. I mean, so his view is sometimes these things are not right. Sometimes you have to do them in states, but also he always talks about how you've got to kind of build it from the ground up, right? And people don't always think of him as like a grassroots organizer. I mean, he's not like former President Obama in that way. He didn't start out as one. But one of the lessons he's learned from politics is that It is about making sure the person in Scranton or wherever understands why you can have universal background checks. And that part of it is that ground building effort, because sometimes Washington is the last to know. You are a, uh, as many people in that building are a veteran of both the Obama and the Biden administrations. You being a keen observer of everything, know that there's been this thing bubbling up periodically that Obama was you know, somehow Obama was timid, didn't try hard enough and look at what Biden's doing and he's being bold. And this drives me nuts, as you might imagine, just because I lived through that and the two periods were different. The situations were different. I give Biden all the credit in the world for doing the things that he's doing. But he also was there (laughs) and was advising the president at the time about what we could and couldn't do. It goes to this point about him being a realist about what could get done. Um, how do you, you know, what do you say? I mean, you might, I, I, I haven't watched every one of your briefings. Has anybody asked you, like, what about this comparison? And does the president feel that uh, Obama was insufficiently bold in his thinking? No one's really asked me exactly that question. I think they might be embarrassed to ask me that type of a question. Uh, people do ask me that privately. Right. And ask me about the differences between them and also just look back at uh, looking back, like how is how is President Biden doing things differently and more boldly? I find that line of questioning. And I'm obviously, as is evidenced by our conversation, you're like a big fan of President Biden. And I love working for him, but incredibly lazy and lacking historical context or kind of an understanding of how government works. I mean, you know, when you look back and, and what I try to do when people ask me about this, I don't say that usually, but is explain that, you know, you look back and there's been this really irritating comparison drawn between the um, American Rescue Plan and the uh, Recovery Act yeah. right early on. Yeah. Now, the context people forget is one that we had already worked with the Bush administration to pass TARP and bail out the banks. Right. And that that was what we were building off of at that moment in time, right? And, you know, it's the art of what's possible in moments in politics. I mean, both presidents would probably say that. And, but there's certainly also lessons. I mean, President Obama has also said this, you know, you're governing and you're leading for that moment in time. And over time, President Biden, then vice president, became more progressive on a range of issues, as did the country. So did President Biden, right? So when you're making comparisons about like what you're doing on climate or what you're doing on particular issues, right? If President Obama were president now, he'd be governing in this moment too, right? And um, so I just find it to be kind of really lazy and um, really lacking the context of what was happening in the moment and really doesn't do the justice to kind of their friendship and relationship and partnership, frankly, at the time. Well, I would think that President Biden would uh, feel strongly about that because he campaigned so vigorously on the Obama economic record when he ran for president, which connotes a certain level of support for it. He he deserves to be proud of that record because he helped write that record uh, and he helped shape that policy and ran the Recovery Act and did all of those things. He deserved the credit that he got for it. And so I think he appreciates what the difference is between now uh, and then as well. So let, let me just wrap up by asking you a little bit uh, about your own life, uh, because I know that you were not, as you said earlier, you weren't necessarily planning to go back into government. Yeah. And I know that um, 
work-life balance is a big uh, concern uh, of yours. Tell me, tell me about how all of that is working out because you, you've got, you know, a very young family. Yeah. And let me, let me connote before I get email. Yes, I know I'm asking this question of a woman. <laughs> I'm not asking this question of a man, but under the rubric of realism. And I know that it's a concern of yours. So, so let me ask you. You know, when I was first talking with members of the Biden universe about this job, I mean, one of the first things I said was I have to talk to my husband about this, not because I need approval from my husband, of course, though we do things in partnership, but because of exactly what you said. I mean, it's a decision having worked here before. I know that you kind of make as a family, right? Because you are agreeing to committing to, I mean, honored to serve, of course, but to really be a part of a wild and crazy roller coaster for a period of time. And my husband said to me, of course, you should talk to them about the potential uh, for this job. What I do find to be helpful is one that, you know, I have a little bit more life under my belt than I did the last time I did this and uh, a lot more perspective. And that is helpful. And I wouldn't have predicted that. Um, also, when I spoke with President Biden about this and, and President Obama was exactly this way, too. I mean, he said to me, no matter how old your kids. And I said, they're five and two and a half. And he said, whatever you need to do to do stuff that it requires kids stuff, it's a doctor's appointment, it's a soccer game, just go do it. That's not always possible every day, but it is quite freeing. You know, I would say that what I've accepted is that I have the honor to do this job and my life is insane. You know, I mean, I wake up at, you know, in the fives, as I like to say, and <laughs> what I wouldn't have predicted but would become a cycle of things is that my five-year-old and now three-year-old hear me moving around and they're immediately up because they know that's the time we have together. And at first I would say, go back to sleep. You need more sleep. But now I realize that you don't have to define what time of day needs to be the quality time. And we yes, yeah, so I'll sit in the bathroom while I'm taking a shower. They put my dresses and jewelry on. This morning, Pinocchio, walk the dog. I have a whole life experience often before I get in my car to go to work. And oftentimes that quality time is not what's traditional, right? It might be from six to 6.45 in the morning, but I get that quality time with them and that's become invaluable. I also, every Friday night I leave early, which has, has for the most part not been an issue. I mean, by early, I mean like 5.15, 5.30 yes. uh, because I do pizza night with my kids and my husband and my brother and sister-in-law and my nephew. And like for some reason, psychologically, that makes me feel like I have that quality time and I pres I'm preserving that quality time. And that's made it uh, important to me, but, you know, made it possible or made it psychologically possible to me, but it's still hard. Um, it's still hard. you said at the beginning that you didn't expect to be in this job forever, yeah. meaning for four years and so on. Right. Is that still your thought that at some point you're going to step away? Yeah. I mean, when I talk to the inner circle of the Biden orbit about this. We talked about coming in and doing this job for a year, which was quite appealing to me for many reasons. One, this is what a moment in history, right, to be a part of. Um, it's always true in the White House, but I think following Trump, especially if you can kind of take the temperature down a little bit, um, that's a cool thing to be a part of. But also, you know, I've had the opportunity to serve. I was the White House communications director, which was great, served in lots of other roles. And, you know, I think it's going to be time for somebody else to have this job in a year from now or about a year from now. And, mm -hmm. and I have little kids and I don't want yeah. to miss time with them. And, you know, my daughter's going into kindergarten. I have a lot of years with her, but she's kind of a magical unicorn, you know, and mm -hmm. I don't want to miss moments. I don't want to miss things. Um, and I'm very mindful of that as well. Well, it's good to be mindful of that because it's hard to step away from those jobs. You know, you're going a million miles an hour, you're in the middle of everything, and then you're not. Yeah, it's a great job. I mean, it's amazing, right? Yeah, so it will be hard, but I I also um, never thought I'd be here and also love my kids a lot. Well, no one, in my view, in my lifetime, has ever done it better than you, this job. And I'm proud as a friend, admiring as a professional and grateful to always to have some time to chat with you, Jen Saki. You're the best. You taught me a lot of the good life lessons of trying to be a good human and still still be a part of history. 
Well, so you've, ma- you've, ma- you've mastered that lesson very, very well. But it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Jeff Fox, Hannah McDonald, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.